Let's pray. Father, who am I and what are my people that we are able thus to offer willingly when all that we have is yours? I pray that those words from King David would reveal to us and remind us of our lowliness, of our absolute dependence on you. Everything we have is from you and nothing we offer is not already yours. So whether it's our prayers or our praise or my words this morning, they are yours. You possess them, you own them, and you do as you please with them. So who are we, as David asks, to offer anything willingly? Well, we're yours. And we live in the submission of being under your control, which brings you your greatest glory and our greatest joy in you. Reveal that to us now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. <clears throat> there are a lot of things that can encourage, encourage a believer, and this is my hope for you this morning. I, I just want to encourage you. This, this is all I want. At the end of the day, if you go home, and somebody asks you, so what was the sermon about today? I hope that your words are, the sermon was an encouragement. That's the whole point of this text. And that's what I want you to feel. And there's a lot of reasons to be encouraged as believers. And we could list hundreds of them and spend a bunch of time on them. But there is one specific reason that Paul wants us to be encouraged. One reason that he gives us to be encouraged as believers there is no greater encouragement in your life than this reality. You are saved. There's no better encouragement than that. If you told me that the Badgers are going to win the NCAA championship, my encouragement would spike. And I would be excited. But that pales in comparison to the joy and encouragement that I get knowing that at the end of this life, I'm going to heaven. When life is at its worst, I often just think to myself, and I, I really do do this a lot in my head, like, I just think, you know, something goes wrong, something goes bad, whether it's minor or big, I just, sometimes I just think in my head, you know, at least I'm going to heaven. Like, no matter what happens, eh, at the end of the day, I'm going to heaven, like, you know, you run out of money, your bank account's at zero dollars, you're like, oh. well, there's always heaven. Like, no matter what happens in life, and, and that's minor and small, you know, like uh, just the other day, I was trying to vacuum, and then the vacuum fell apart in my hands, and I was like, ah! And then I was reminded instantly by the Holy Spirit, like, Mark, you're going to heaven. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, it doesn't matter. So, like, little things in life, you just kind of blow past them, like, there's something more important going on here than 
than the little things that frustrate us. But what about the real big things? What about the serious things? What about the hard things? What about the difficult things, the hardships and the pains and the sufferings? Whether those sufferings are because of the persecution you face for following Jesus or those sufferings are, are, have nothing to do with your behavior and are simply hard, like losing a loved one. In the midst of all those things, whether easy and small or big and difficult, we have this encouragement that supersedes all of it. That we're saved. That we have salvation in Jesus Christ. That we get eternal life. Just knowing that I'm saved gives me, I'm speaking for myself here, knowing that I'm saved gives me daily encouragement through the toughest times. And that is at the heart of Paul's encouragement for us today in Colossians 2.2. 2. And he says in chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. So we're going to stop there. And he starts with the word that. So we've got a, a word that gives us a transition and is showing us a reason. So another, instead of just saying that, we could say the words so that, meaning that your hearts may be encouraged is the result of something. That's what Paul's aim is, is for your encouragement, for your heart to be encouraged. So what leads to this encouragement? If you go back to verse 1, we find out what leads to this encouragement. is Paul struggling and agonizing for the church, working hard to develop the faith and the growth of the church. That's his aim. It's, that's his aim for Colossae and the churches in Laodicea. Those churches had not seen Paul's face. And Paul is telling them, I struggle for you. Go back even more verses in chapter 1. I suffer for you. And that suffering and that struggle and that agonizing he does for the church. All of the, the shipwrecks and the whippings and the hardships and, the, and being stoned nearly to death. All the difficult things Paul endured for the church is so that your hearts may be encouraged. Now he's talking to the church in Colossae, and he's talking about the church in Laodicea, but these churches, were, these letters were meant to be circulated. He's talking to all the churches. And this is for us. This is Paul talking to us. He's not just talking about the Colossians' hearts being encouraged. He's talking about the church, big C, big church, the church universal, being encouraged. Paul struggled, suffered, and agonized so that you and me could worship freely in this place. So that we would be encouraged by our salvation. So that Paul could get the message out about the mystery of God that is revealed, which is Christ. And so that that mystery could reach the hearts and minds of many people throughout the world and throughout time so that you and I could be saved. Because if Paul doesn't do that, then what? Then there's no church and there's no continuation of the gospel. So Paul does all of that so that your heart, you specifically, would be encouraged. And that is ultimately the hope of this text, that the church would be encouraged. But to be encouraged, we must know why we are being encouraged. So, question, what is the encouragement? Back in chapter 1, verse 26 Paul introduces the mystery that was hidden for ages, but is now revealed to the church. And that mystery, he says in verse 27, is Christ. Specifically, the reality that God had hidden the fullness of the gospel message until after the time of Christ. And then the mystery 
that was hidden to the Jews for thousands of years is now revealed to the church. And that mystery is that anyone and everyone who believes in Christ can be saved. That Gentiles can be saved, not just the Jews. And the mystery not only reveals salvation for all people groups, but it reveals the extent of God's grace and mercy to reach a lost world. It is that mystery that Paul now says should encourage us. At the end of verse 2, Paul says the result. So he says his struggle and his agonizing, he does that so that your hearts may be encouraged. And the result of your heart being encouraged is this. The end of verse 2, resulting in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So he repeats that the mystery is Christ, meaning what was once the law for Jews is now Christ for all. Okay, and, and Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law, thus fulfilling the requirements of perfection that we need to get into heaven. So that knowledge of Jesus being our substitute, taking our place on the cross, and by faith in him, we, must, we meet God's requirement for heaven, which is perfection. Through Christ. When we believe in Christ, we attain his perfection. He takes our sin. That is called, the, as Martin Luther called it, the great exchange. He takes our sin and forgives it, and he gives to us his perfection. That's our ticket into heaven. And we get that when we believe. That's faith. Faith gets us that ticket. That knowledge is essential to being saved. You can't be saved if you don't acknowledge the need of forgiveness for your sins and the perfection of Christ that is yours. You have to know those things to be saved. And having that knowledge and then knowing God's mystery results in believing the gospel. Or what we would say is being saved. So basically, Paul's overall encouragement here for the church, for Colossae, for you, is that you should be encouraged in your salvation. The fact that we are saved, that God made a way, that our eternal life is secure, that hope does not fail, and that we are redeemed and restored and regenerated and made new and made righteous in God's sight through our faith in Jesus, that should encourage us. And that should encourage us for a number of reasons. And there are many ways to answer the question, why does that reality of my salvation encourage me? Why? Like I said, lots of ways to answer that. But Paul focuses in on one way in which we are encouraged that is rooted in something so fundamentally and foundationally solid that your encouragement cannot and should not ever be shaken if you understand this reality. And that reality is the character and the nature of our God. Our encouragement in being saved finds its roots and its solid, firm foundation standing upon the nature of God. If we want to really be endlessly and forever, despite whatever circumstance you go through in your life, if you want to be encouraged in your salvation, no matter what you face, you have to build your encouragement in your salvation upon the true nature of God. And that is really what Paul digs into here. 
So why does this encourage us? I'm going I'm to build an argument toward the nature of God. Why does our salvation encourage us? Because this life, on this earth, in this flesh, the struggle, the ups and downs, the sin, the holiness, the righteousness, the good things, the bad things, the easy things, the hard things, the pain, the joy, all of it, from best to worst, all that your life is on this earth as a Christian, in your salvation, is as bad as it's ever going to be for you. I mean, what's imagined for yourself? What's the worst possible thing that could happen to me? And I would imagine none of you would say dying because you know that, well, if I die, I just go to heaven. So, like, the worst thing anyone could actually do to me is kill me. So dying could be the worst thing. But I say that the worst imaginable thing would be someone I love dying. That's harder. My wife and I argue about which one, which one of us we want to die first. I'm like, no, I want to die first. Like, no, I want to die first. Like, I don't want to live without you. Well, I don't want to live without you. She's like, you're going to survive much better without me than I will without you. I was like, true. So, <laughs> she in here? She didn't hear that, did she? Okay. <laughs> um, if you think about the worst possible thing that could happen to you, I don't even think that's worse. I think there are worse things than someone dies. If, if a, someone you love is saved and they die, I know that's hard, but that's also a great joy because you know where they are and you're going to see them for eternity. Okay? If, if some, it, so there are, there are probably worse things. And I think, depending on who you are, you can think of something that's maybe worse for you that wouldn't be worse for me. But if you think about the worst imaginable thing that could happen to you, that's your hell. That's as bad as it gets. And for most people, those worst imaginable thing, that worst thing imaginable for you, probably won't even happen in your life. That probably won't happen to you. Statistically speaking, whatever that horrible, tragic thing is that you can think of that would be the worst thing imaginable, probably not even going to happen to you. But there'll be plenty of difficult, bad, hard, challenging, maybe traumatic things in your life that do happen. And through it all, that's the worst that it gets for us. Because once this life's over, we spend eternity in perfect glory in the presence of Jesus. And so we have that hope to look forward to. And we have that hope reminds us that this hardship is, is my struggle. And it's a struggle that I will endure to heaven. Versus having hardships that I have to struggle to that have no meaning, purpose, or end, or end game, or goal. That when I get through them, then what? I'm a better person to what? Spend eternity in hell as a better person? That doesn't do me any good. So we have this hope in the despite of, despite how difficult things are in life, this is as bad as it gets. In verse one, Paul tells the Colossians that his ministry for the church is a struggle and that it is agonizing, meaning all the sufferings and hardships and pain and difficulty of living the Christian life is worth it. Those struggles and hardships that come with following Jesus and obeying his word will not be not be well received by a world that makes its own rules. When we follow Jesus, when we follow his rules, when we follow his word, it is going to produce difficult times in your life. 
So through the struggle, through the hardship, through the worst things in life, we have this salvation that we look forward to. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 talks about. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3, when Jesus, or when the author says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He saw on the other side of the cross was this perfect, endless, eternal joy in the presence of his Father, at the right hand of his Father. And that looking forward, that hope that Jesus saw through the cross allowed him and encouraged him and strengthened him to endure the pain and the hardship of the cross. It's the same reality for us, that all the hard things in our life, we look through our cross, through our daily cross, through our monthly, yearly, or lifetime crosses that we have to bear and endure. And on the other end, we see glory and joy and perfection in the face of our Father, in the hands of Christ, in the right seat of the God the Father is our King sitting and waiting to worship uh, for us to worship him and, and, to, and to enjoy his presence forever. And we look at that hope and it, it helps us and it encourages us to endure anything. And we only have that because of our salvation. So because of that, we are encouraged in our salvation. And because of that, it makes it worth it to follow Christ, to follow his rules, to obey his word, because doing so will produce difficult times in your life especially as the end of time draws near. Because in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, we're told how much good morals in this world will decay as the end of time gets closer. And so people are no longer going to be okay with you even behaving appropriately because the standards will change. And if you're paying attention at all to anything going on in the world, you can see those standards changing all around us. The amount of sin that the Bible says is sin that becomes judicially approved in our states and in our country reveal the moral decay of humanity. And it's not just in America, it's all over the world. And I'm not making a political statement here. I'm making a biblical statement here about the reality of the end times. Things are going to get worse. Morality will decline. Truth will be hated more and more. And if you maintain biblical convictions to follow Jesus and obey his word, you're going to face opposition. And I, I can say that because Jesus said it. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's an expectation we all need to have. Because think about it, just your human experience on earth living in America. Most of you have lived in America most of your life. You have had endless freedom. And if you didn't live in America, you probably lived in a free country when you didn't live in America. So we've had endless freedom our entire lives. We've had, uh, for, for most of us here, we've had no serious wars. We had a, a long war in the Middle East that, I don't know, are we still in that thing? I don't even know if we're officially, I don't even, <laughs> I don't know. Are we still fighting a war in the Middle East for like, Weapons of mass destruction, that's over, right? Right, okay, and so now I'm getting nods saying, it's over, man. So, 
should have maybe looked at the news before I started this. Anyways, um, now we've got other wars going on, but, but like even the whole Ukraine thing, like are we going to be in war? We don't know. Like that, that Ukraine issue, that Russian-Ukraine thing, and there's a lot of talk and people are getting worried, war, war, war. And, and the reality is like the reason Americans are like, ah, 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 World War III is because most Americans alive today haven't seen war. I mean, there are older veterans who are maybe in Vietnam, but most Americans had a pretty easy life. Just worldwide peace, essentially. For the mo- not worldwide peace, a peace in America for the most part. We've had it pretty easy. We've had great financial success as a country. We've been wealthy. We have everything we need. We have more than we need. We have an abundance of things that we don't need. We are so beyond needing our needs that we have now have a need for things that we don't need. We got so sick of, needing, of not needing something that we actually need, like food and water, that we're like, man, I got to need something. Uh, I need Netflix. And, and so we live in this world of I just need all these things that aren't even real needs anymore. And we've kind of become soft, morally soft in our heart and in our convictions and then when real hard, difficult times start to come to a soft generation, that's difficult to endure. And so, if we are going to be biblical, godly people who follow Jesus and obey his word, Jesus tells us, the world's going to hate you. Because as the ease of our life declines because things will become more difficult as the end draws near because that's a biblical promise. As the end draws near and things do become morally more corrupt, sin becomes promoted, and then your conviction to avoid sin and obey Jesus and follow the word and be good is going to be opposed and ridiculed, and at one point, sometime in the future, you will be killed for it. Maybe not in my lifetime, but sometime. And if it's not going to be in my lifetime, then it's going to be in my children's lifetime. And if it's not in my children's lifetime, it's going to be in their children's lifetime. And I want my children to be ready to obey Jesus when they are being forced to make a decision between Christ or death. And they choose Christ. And so they die. And the only way my kids are going to be able to make that choice. The only way my kids can have that conviction when they're 35 years old, the only way my sons can stand in front of people who are ready to stone them to death or kill them or put them in jail or even just ridicule them and cast them out of society because they believe in Jesus and they refuse to sin and they want to obey his word, the only way that my children will be able to do that is if I teach them to do it by doing it myself. And the only way their children will be able to do it is if my children do it, and my children need to do it by me doing it. So it starts right here, right now, with you. And if you're an older adult, and you're thinking, my time with my children is up, first of all, if you have adult children, know your time with your children is not up. You are still their parent. You can still speak truth into their life. You can still encourage them. You can still teach them. You can still give them wisdom. You can still advise them. You can still be there for them. You can still be a shepherd to their heart. It is not too late. And if it is too late for you as a parent, 
then just trust God. That's where you need to be. He'll take care of your family and pray for your family. So here's, here's my point. You're going to have to make a decision at some point in your life to follow Jesus, and you're going to have to make a decision about how firmly and convicted you decide you're going to follow Jesus because it's going to get to a point where it's going to be hard, which means we have to follow the command that Jesus gives us in John 15, 5. Whoever abides in me, that means obeys because you're in Christ and you're following him, you're abiding in him, in his ways, and his ways are revealed in scripture through commands and other instructions. So whoever abides in Jesus, whoever obeys Jesus, and I abide in him, he it is that does what? Bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And it is not only Jesus who speaks of suffering and hardship in, our, in the kingdom Paul is clear to the young pastor Timothy. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Someone please take that verse and explain to me how that verse can be broken down into any other way than following Jesus will cause suffering. There's nothing about that verse that says anything other than if you obey the word, eventually it's going to be hard. You will be persecuted. The degree of persecution varies dramatically. When we close a daycare here, a lot of you might not even know about the daycare situation, but when we close a daycare here, that was a biblical conviction that this church, its leaders and its people decided that's what we're going to believe. That's what we're going to do. That's who we are. That's where we stand. That's our conviction. We know it's right. It's the best thing for the kingdom of God. And when we did it, we were persecuted for it. We faced hardship, ridicule, and many difficulties because of it. And we just stood in the reality that this is the cost. And that's okay. And if they want to hate us, so be it. Because I just think Jesus says, if you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. Well, if they don't love me as their own because I'm obeying Jesus, then that means God loves me as his own. And if that's true, then Romans 8, 17, that tells me that there's going to be suffering for following Christ, also tells me in Romans 8, 18, that the sufferings of this world are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So it's worth it. Paul's point is that as a minister of the church, he and his, he has and will continue to suffer for the people. And I say the same thing to you. And you should say the same thing to me. I will continue to suffer, struggle, agonize through very difficult and hard things. Sometimes those things are with you. Sometimes I have to have a hard conversation with you. That's a struggle. That's an agony. That's a hardship for me to sit you down and say, what you're doing is not like Jesus. And it needs to change. That's a hard, I don't want to do that. I wish you just, I wish you just did it right. But you won't because I don't and you don't and we won't and we're, we sin and we make mistakes and that's why we have the church because then I can step in or someone else can step in and say, hey, dude, this is a thing in your life that needs to change and I'm telling you this because I love you and I want to see you grow. Let's work on this together. Those are hard conversations to have. I'm willing to struggle and endure through that for you. And you need to be willing to do it for me and for each other. And, there's, and, so, so, and so Paul kind of casts this idea of like my struggle and agony through all the hardships of building the kingdom of God is for you. 
And that translates over to all believers that living a godly life and obeying Jesus' word will be a sacrifice of your ease and it will produce hardships in your life. Now, the whole point here was to be encouraging and that is discouraging, <laughs> right? Like the whole point of following Jesus is to suffer. Yay, who wants to suffer? Everyone raise your hands. Okay. <laughs> right, nobody chooses to suffer. Nobody wants suffering. What we want is holiness and suffering produces that. We don't want to have hard times. We don't want challenging times. If we did, we wouldn't want heaven. We want heaven because it's perfect. But we know that when the Bible tells us, but that's the cost, then we say, okay, well, I'm willing to accept that. I have to accept that if I'm going to live a godly life. So that can be discouraging. But Paul also provides a reason for these hardships, the hardships that come for following Jesus and obeying his word. And you find it in 2 Corinthians 1.9. Paul says the reason for all these hard things is this. To make us rely, not on ourselves, but on God. So obedience causes hardships, and hardships cause reliance and trust in God. Essentially, obedience produces faith. Obedience produces faith. Now you could argue that faith produces obedience, right? Because that is what we have all been taught in the church, that obedience comes after we put our faith in Christ. First, I have faith in Jesus, and then I obey him. But the reality is that putting your faith in Christ, getting saved, that moment you get saved, putting your faith in Christ is obedience. Jesus started his ministry with this command in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. The first thing you do when you, the first thing you do as a Christian is that. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the first Christian act we do. Repent and believe in the gospel. When you do that, you are obeying. And you could argue that we have to, that we had to have faith first before acting in obedience because obeying Jesus by believing the gospel has to come from one who first Trust in Jesus for salvation. So faith must come before obedience. And if you say that, you're right. But if you realize what I've just said, <laughs> it is that I'm making a seemingly contradictory statement. Faith does come before we obey his command to believe the gospel. Faith does come before we obey his command to believe the gospel. But faith is not our first act. Obedience is. I s I'm saying that faith has to be there before we obey him. Okay, now what I'm trying to help you parse out is the process of salvation. And I think this is massively important. 
Because if you're thinking, what's, it doesn't matter, whatever. I'm saved, I have faith, obedience, which one happened first? Irrelevant. It doesn't matter because I, I've already been through them, I'm already saved. What matters now is my current faith and my current obedience. Well, in order to understand the way your current faith and current obedience operate and work in your Christian faith, through your daily life, you have to understand how it started. You have to go back to the roots. We have to go back to what happened when you were saved. Which happened first, faith or obedience? I would say, and I'm not going to get into this part of it, because I would argue biblically that the answer is both, that it's a simultaneous action. But what I want to do is kind of take that and see from our perspective, from the human experience of getting saved, what does it look like and which one happens first? Obedience is our first act as Christians because though faith comes first, our faith is not our act, it's God's. That's the difference. And that is where we find this foundation upon which our encouragement and our salvation stands. This deeply rooted, firm foundation upon which you build an encouragement and your salvation for the rest of your life as a Christian, all of this stands on this reality that God is absolutely sovereign. And that your faith, your salvation itself is a product not of your faith, not of your choice to have faith, but of his act to infuse faith into you in which you respond in obedience. The Bible teaches us that saving faith is two things. It's a choice and it's not a choice. Right? Amen? Amen. <laughs> Some of you are like, why would I say amen to that? It's a totally contradictory statement that makes no sense, right? It's a reality because we are told in like John 1.12 that we must receive Christ, which means I have to put my hands out and like take it. I have to like, have to, have to accept this gift. So there is this, and, and your experience in this life is that it is a choice. You're choosing to believe. Just like if I, if, if you, you know, what you eat for lunch this afternoon is a choice. You could eat pizza or you could eat sub sandwiches, whatever. You're going to make a choice. It's your choice. You experience it as a choice. You make choices every day. You make hundreds of choices all day long, all the time. And you experience them as your willful and free choices. That's your experience. My problem with your experience is that experience cannot ever, ever trump the word of God. It can't. If that door swung open and monkeys came flying in here with wings and flew all around the sanctuary and then left. <laughs> We're just, I'm, I'm making a point. I'm making a point. And then we read a Bible verse. I'm trying to make it a point by being extreme. And then we read a Bible verse that says, monkeys cannot fly. What are you going to believe? Your experience or the word? You have to believe the word. It doesn't matter what your experience is. And you say, then your word's wrong because I just experienced it. And I would say, then there's some form of manipulation going on that we are not privy to. There's, just, there's a reality that I don't care how real your experience is, it cannot trump the word of God. So whatever you feel like in your life is a choice, especially when it comes to your salvation, I'm telling you what the Bible tells us about that choice, that you are meant to choose him, and you are, you are meant to experience that as a choice, but it's not yours. 
And I don't have time to explore the, the fullness of that reality. Because what we're talking about here is election. And I do not have time to explore all of election today. There's just no way. But at the root of our salvation is this fundamental nature of God that he is a God who chooses, elects, and predestines people for salvation. And upon that firm foundation stands your real salvation and only a real salvation that's planted on top of that firm, sovereign God who elects can that salvation become encouraging as your life goes forward. And I'll show you why. The Bible teaches us that faith is a gift, not a choice, but a gift. And though we experience it as a choice, it is not at all our work or our doing or our choice because in reality it is a gift that we receive. And in, order for in order to receive it, it has to be given to us. And if you were at a birthday party and someone gave you a gift, would you reject that gift? No, you can't. It would be rude, right? Now, that analogy doesn't even fit. It makes sense because one person gives the gift, the other person has to receive the gift. Well, first of all, no one's going to no decline the, the, the uh, birthday gift at a birthday party. That would be ridiculous. So, in that respect, the analogy makes sense because you cannot decline the offer when it is given to you. When Jesus decides, when God has decided to elect you and offers you the gift, it is irrevocable. You will receive it just like if you were a kid at a birthday party and someone handed you the gift, you would never turn it down. But that analogy completely fails because the person who's given me that gift is not in absolute and complete control of every atom in that room, including the atoms and the neurons and everything going on in my brain and in my body. That person giving me that gift is not in control of the future like God is. That person giving me that gift is not in control according to their will what I do think and say. So the analogy fails in that regard. So I, we experience this salvation as a choice, but Ephesians 2.8 tells us this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. How? It is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Okay, so what does that mean? It is not your own doing, that word doing. Does everyone know what the word do means, right? Any action. The word do encompasses any action, which means you, in regards to receiving salvation, the gift of faith, have done nothing. But simply receive it. And when I say receive it, I don't mean go get it. I mean absorb it. It is put into you and you receive it whether willingly or unwillingly or aware or unaware is irrelevant. It is simply put into you. And I'm going to show you why I say he puts it into you in a minute. Now, you might argue, you know, that we have to receive this gift. We're, so we're choosing it. And therefore, choosing Jesus with faith is our first act. So faith is our first act. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 
You cannot choose to place your faith in Jesus unless you first have the Holy Spirit. That's what that verse is saying. You cannot say Jesus is Lord unless you already have the Holy Spirit. And you don't say Jesus is Lord until you've believed the gospel, which means you can't believe the gospel unless the Holy Spirit has already, is already there. We tend to think of salvation as this moment we decide, I'm going to believe in Jesus, and when I do, then I get the Holy Spirit. The problem with that kind of thinking is that in order to believe in Jesus, you have to have enough faith to believe in Jesus. And you have to have that faith without having the Holy Spirit and without having Jesus. How can that be? Because nobody without Jesus has any faith in God. Period. Romans 3, 10 through 18. No, not one. No one. No one desires God. No one wants God. No one pursues God. No one. Not even one. Paul is abundantly clear in Romans 3, 10 through 18, that there's not a human soul who would ever choose God apart from the Holy Spirit infusing faith into their soul. The only way you can accept Jesus and say yes to the gospel is if you have faith. And the only way you can get faith is if the Spirit has put it there. Because without the Spirit putting it there, you have no faith and therefore you have no reason and no desire to choose him. Meaning, faith is caused in us by the Holy Spirit before we ever effectually have that effective moment where we acknowledge or confess belief in the gospel. Therefore, our first act as a Christian is not only to believe, but to obey. Because that faith is put into us, and in faith, we act in obedience. That is an obedient act. That act of obedience where the Spirit puts faith in us, us being the recipients of that faith is declared by God an act of obedience by you. Well, that doesn't make sense. If he just kind of forces me into it and I don't really have a say, then how is it my act of obedience? Because I, I should just get to this verse. I'll get to the verse in a second. Because the Bible, because the Bible says so. That's honest. That's all I'm going to say right now, and then I'll tell you what verse the Bible says. What verse in the Bible says that? But I have something else I want to say first. Okay, it cannot be any other way because prior to being given the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit, we are completely incapable of choosing faith or choosing to believe the gospel. Why do I say this? Because not only does Paul say it in Romans 3, 10 through 18, but he says it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He says, this is us without Jesus. This is us. Now, now keep in mind, I'm going to read this verse. And according to a lot of Christians and even a lot of preachers, this is the condition, this is the condition everybody's in, and we all agree on that. And in this condition and out of this condition, People choose Jesus. That's an argument that has to be made if faith is not put into us without our consent. So if faith is not put into us without our consent and we have to choose first, we have to believe with faith before he gives us faith, then these are the people who make that choice. Now listen to this description. This is us without Jesus. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, who Jesus says is your father if you're not saved, in John 8. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that was in us, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then we suddenly woke up one day and decided, I don't want to be like this anymore. I'm going to choose Jesus. Impossible. That is impossible. There is nothing in this description in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that indicates in any way, shape, or form that we can either want or choose to believe in Jesus and his gospel. In fact, not only is there no indication in the text that we don't want to choose him, or that there's no indication that we would want to choose him, but there is also a clear statement that we are spiritually dead. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a dead person raise himself to life. It's not possible. It's more possible. Keep this in mind. It is more possible to raise your dead human body back to human breathing life than it is to raise your spiritually dead soul to life in Christ on your own. So there's no way any human in this condition, dead, can make themselves alive, there has to be something done. There has to be an outside factor that causes a faith and an obedience to the gospel. There has to be an outside factor that infuses faith into us without consent. And we're finally going to get to the verse. It's a verse I've used a trillion times at this pulpit, and I'm going to continue to use it over and over because it is a fundamental and foundational text to the very nature of God and our salvation. Ezekiel 36, 27. This is God in the Old Testament making a promise about the future new covenant in Christ. So though it's Old Testament, it's about us, the church. And he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And the word cause applies to this part too. And cause you to be careful to obey my rules. Notice the forceful verbs that God does without our consent. He will put and he will cause. He will put his spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, in you. Well, there you go. There's my entire defense for you not choosing Jesus and mustering up your own faith to believe without him doing it without your consent because he has to. He can't leave you to your own to wait and choose for him because you never will. So he has to put his spirit in you and then his spirit will cause you to obey him. So all the acts of obedience, even the act of believing the gospel, is an act of the spirit causing your obedience and causing your faith. Which is why Jesus said in John 15, 5, you are apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you understand the gravity of that statement? We look at that and we're like, yeah, I need Jesus. No, no, nothing. Like we take that verse and we kind of like soften it up like, yeah, you know, I can't like, you know, serve well without Jesus. You can't breathe without Jesus. You don't get to breathe unless he decides you get to breathe. And when he decides you don't get to breathe anymore, you don't breathe anymore. There's no consent there's no need for him to ask. Why would he ask you? You're not your own. You were bought 
with a price. And that price was his blood. He owns you. He does not need your consent for anything. And he is not a bully. Listen, I, I know I'm getting a little worked up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I know, I know that now, now I'm starting, I hope that I'm not conveying to you this attitude that Jesus has. Like, oh, I'm in control. I do whatever I want to you. Not at all. He's not a bully. He's not a jerk. He loves you. He's compassionate and gentle and kind and gracious and merciful. He leads you and guides you and serves you and loves you and died for you. I mean, he is, he is a, a beautiful Savior. What I'm telling you is that he owns you, period. I said it in the prayer earlier. David said it in his prayer to the whole nation of Israel who stood in front of the congregation and prayed, who am I and what are my people that we would thus willingly offer you anything because anything we offer you is yours. Nothing is ours, not even ourselves. He is in complete control. He doesn't need your consent to put his spirit in you. He doesn't need your consent to give you the gift of faith. He doesn't need your consent to cause your obedience. And he doesn't need your consent for you to continue to live or not live. He doesn't need your consent for anything, ever, ever. And if you think to your, if, if at all you're thinking, yeah, but you know, what you're doing is you're stealing my personal agency. You're taking from me my freedom, the free will that I have, or the free choices that I can make. You're taking, Jesus is, is, is going to respect my freedom. Um, my only response to that initially, and I think I have more responses for that I'm not going to get into. My only and my most important first response is, where is that in the Bible? Like, just show me in the Bible. That's all I'd want to know. That would be my first question. Show me a verse in the Bible that teaches that, and we'll have a conversation. But other than that, we have to understand that the reason we don't have consent is because he's absolutely sovereign over all things. There isn't a molecule that exists in the entire universe that he does not dictate how it moves, where it moves, and why it moves, and what it does, and what it's a part of. He maintains and holds all things together. That was the fundamental reality about the nature and supremacy of Christ that Paul established just in the last chapter, verses, one through, or verses 15 through 20, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's verse 17. So he doesn't need your consent. And the reason we don't like this idea that Jesus doesn't need our consent, well, I don't like that because it takes away my human agency and my freedom and will, because we think of ourselves as more than we really are. That's the real problem. The real problem is we go, God's up here and we're like, you know, we're like down here. And like there's a huge gap. Oh, big time. I mean, like, you know what? It's as far as my arms can reach. God's way up here and I'm way down here. And he, he's in control of things but, you know, he made me in his image, and I'm like him, and I can choose, and I've got all this freedom, and, 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 he, and he gives me this, this, these choices to make, and he gives me this freedom. And I'm not taking from you the reality that you experience everything in life as a real choice, okay? But we really have a problem because we think this is the gap. And the reality is the gap itself is infinite. It is infinite. Infinite. Do you know what that word means? There is no, my hands cannot go on, they've gone forever without end, and there is no end to the extent between the supremacy of God over all of creation and you. I think I've shared this example before. We are ants walking around the ground, and God is, let's say in the analogy, the human being. And we pick up this sugar cube, 
And we find on the ground, we're like, guys, I found a sugar cube. And we go tell the other ants, they're like, oh, we like worship this sugar cube. And then, and then we think like this thing is just so amazing. And then we consume this little God that's not really the real God. And we think he's so good and we consume. And then whoop, that sugar cube's gone. God's gone. We need a better God now. And we go looking for one. And the reality is God, if he's this human watching these ants carry around sugar cubes, is going, hey, uh, that sugar cube doesn't even have consciousness I am a human being, and I am so far and above, above and beyond you as an ant that you can't even fathom my, my existence. Now that analogy, because an ant on the ground, carrying around sugar cubes, thinking that that is their God, because that's their whole purpose in life, is to find sugar cubes, I guess, right? <laughs> that little ant cannot comprehend your existence. And so the analogy fits that that ant is just worshiping, doing what it's meant to do, enjoy sugar, and looks up at the human and goes, I don't even fathom this. I can't even fathom this thought. I'm not really having a thought because I'm an ant and I can't think. I just love sugar. The difference between that ant and you and that human isn't even comparable to the difference between that human and God. Unimaginably different. Unfathomably different so vast and so wide and so eternal and so infinite is the difference between god and us and everything that is and will be and that exists and all your choices and your salvation and all of it everything all of life all of existence all of reality the future the past today who wins march madness it's not going to be baylor so my bracket is busted (sighs) that was god's will (laughs) For my suffering. <laughs> Just kidding. All of it is his. So, to, to, for him to go, I'm saving you. Okay? And for the Romans who complain about it, Paul answers their complaint in Romans 9. Who, they say, who are you? Who are you? What, what, who are you to, how can you ever just, just choose us Without us being able to, you can't just infuse your will on us. And Paul says, yes, this is literally Paul's response. Yeah, you can. That's it. That's Paul's answer. Yeah, you can. In fact, the fact that you ask God why he would do that is in in and of itself the problem. And so so let me wrap all this up into this idea of, because I didn't even finish all of verse 2. Because there's, there's more that I want to explore about this whole reality of um, the absolute sovereignty of God electing us. Because we find this in John 15, 19, but I chose you out of the world. He chose us. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John 6, 44, no one can come to the Father unless, he, and, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will in Acts 13, 48. says, and as many as were appointed, appointed to eternal life, believed. This is his absolute and total work of God to infuse faith into you and that faith is you respond in that faith with obedience, but even that obedience is the cause of the Holy Spirit. 
So what does all this have to do with us being encouraged in our salvation? The reality is that you are not alone. Like if this is the God of the universe who controls all things and then chooses me and, and, and puts faith in me and causes my obedience, that means he's chosen to love me. That's what Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says. He chose to love me. He predestined me in love. That means the rest of my life on this earth is absolutely and totally secure and solid and firm and glorious and good and I am safe in God's hands. I'm loved by God because he is sovereign and if he is not the sovereign God and this salvation is dependent on my choice I won't choose him and even if I could I'd be in trouble if I did choose him because I don't have him who first secured me in him I need that he has to be sovereign over all things in order for me to feel like I can navigate through a dark forest on my own alone by myself because I can't and I need someone who can walk me through the forest. I need someone who can guide me through this life, this hard darkness of Christian life that will be difficult when you choose to obey him. Those challenging times will come as you live in the conviction of obedience to his word. And as that happens and those hard times come, the only kind of God that will ever cause you to endure through those hardships in faithfulness and obedience is a God who made you saved. And it's a God who is sovereign not only over your salvation, which is why your salvation is an encouragement, but is also sovereign over what happens next in your life. And that very sovereign God is the same God who not only ordains those hard things for your growth and for his glory and for your joy in him, but he's the same God who is a shepherd who comforts you in peace and in joy and in gentleness and in lowliness. He is the same God who comes beside you and sits beside you and, 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 and soothes you as you endure and strengthens you with his joy. Only a God like that can make your salvation an encouragement. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I love you so much and we love you so much and there is just so much here to explore and and I'm just grateful to you for the patience of your people to endure the teaching and even, even the hard truths, maybe the ones that you may not understand or maybe don't agree with but are willing to endure through time. So I just pray that your word would sink in, that it would absorb into our hearts and minds and souls and that we would take this truth about who you truly are, and it would encourage us in our salvation today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.